This is The Takeaway. I'm John Hockenberry. Thanks for listening. Consider how many suicide bombings in Baghdad the headlines have missed since the U.S. stopped officially paying attention at the end of 2011. Today's violence is noted because it falls on the anniversary of the day the U.S. invaded 10 years ago. But the more than 50 people dead today and the roughly 200 wounded from a suicide bombing is hardly unprecedented. It would be wrong to say today's violence is the norm, but it would be equally wrong to say that there is anything like peace in the nation where Saddam Hussein was sent packing in the spring of 2003. Saddam, executed in 2006, wasn't the only one chased away from Iraq by the events that unfolded a decade ago. Today, we'll spend a few moments thinking about the refugees created by the U.S. invasion, 2.2 million of them, and all of the exiles that continue to this day. Our first voice is mother, journalist, Ala Majid. When she learned of the execution of Saddam Hussein and saw pictures of the grisly hanging of the Iraqi leader, she already barely recognized her country. Ala Majid remembers the day the war came to Baghdad, 10 years ago, certainly, but much more vividly. She remembers the day she decided to leave Iraq for good in early 2007. Recalling that day is kind of painful for me. Um, It was at 7 in the morning, uh, and my flight out of the country was going to happen at 6 in the evening. So I packed, and nobody at all knew that I was leaving. Not even my family or my two children or my ex-husband or nobody. So I kissed the children goodbye. They were asleep. And I left telling everybody I was going to work. And I went to the airport. And I got on the plane, made sure that uh, everything is closed. Uh, The plane started moving. And then I gave a call to my family and said, I'm leaving. And that was it. I could only say, I'm leaving. I'll call you when I get to Amman, Jordan. And I hung up. So that was the day. I think I I would say that that was the most difficult um, day of my life. What was it that was going on in Iraq that caused you to feel as though you'd had enough? You couldn't you couldn't really go on there, that it was untenable for you to stay. Mostly the tension and the hatred that I started feeling among the people of of my country. And that was just painful to watch and go through. Um, People started not trusting each other fearing each other and just, yeah, resentful towards each other. And, um, you know, of course, seeing the destruction of my country, being a journalist and having to go to, you know, where bombings occur and where killings occur, go to funeral, talk to mothers who lost their sons, talk to wives and who lost their husbands. And and just seeing the streets, the bridges, you know, continuous lack of water, electricity, uh, medical care, that was all uh, just not good to watch. Um, and then, you know, of course, we watched the media and people would celebrate, people would um, say it is good. And it was both people trying to leave the lie and people who are hopeful that the situation would or is better. So that was what was happening um, at the time, and including, of course, the threats uh, that I received including from family members who were from a different sect than the sect that I came from, who suspected my work as a journalist with uh, American and British media outlets. So you were left with the choice of either believing the lie or simply having unfounded hope about the future, and you decided to leave. Did you encounter other refugees who had left for their various reasons as you began your travels around the world to try to find a place to live? 
Yeah, of course. And and uh, the reasons why I left seemed, uh, I would say, minor. I mean, I did lose uh, family members. My brother-in-law was killed. My uncle was killed. Cousins, aunts, and including children. Uh, so that was that was bad. Uh, but also hearing other people's stories, stories of rape, stories of random killing, of heinous ways of killing. Then I thought, yeah, my story is kind of mild in comparison. What questions do children ask when they're in this experience? And tell me about the toll that all of this has taken on your sons. So I, when I left Iraq, I did leave without my children. I got them back and saw them the first time four years after. That was not good. That was not good. And so seeing my children, of course, it was kind of a new relationship between mother and children. Um, They were four and six at the time I left. So they were really little children. So when I saw them first, it was kind of like a really new relationship. They did call me mom and I did say I love you, but there was a lot of tension in between. And so, yeah, what they told me is that, yeah, mama, when you left, we really thought that you were dead. My older son, Yusuf, who is now 14, I got him when he was 10. Um, he told me that every time he went out to play with his friends, he would look at piles of garbage, thinking that maybe he would find me slaughtered and thrown on the pile of garbage. That was that was not easy. That was really not easy. And, and so many other stories of uh, raids to the house they lived in, uh, friends who got killed, houses burned to the ground in their neighborhood. Um, it was not good. Seeing a lot of blood, a lot of killing, and a, many, many other stories that they would tell me on nightly basis. That's when we go to sleep. I got them, and I was sleeping in between them. So I put one here, one here, and they would tell me these stories. Mama, can I tell you one story? And they go on. And me, the mother, you know, I want to be open with them. But it was hard to listen to what they had to say. How do you protect sons? as you take them around the world to New York City uh, and and keep them safe, knowing what they know, feeling their sense of rootlessness, uh, of, of not having a home? How do, you, how do you protect them and guide them? We think that children are resilient, and maybe they are. But I'm not sure it is the case with my children. They still, I mean, we moved to New York. They came to New York City, and it's it's okay. And now we are in Berlin. They still, when they walk on the street and see, for example, a toy on the on the street, they warn each other, do not pick it up. It may be a bomb. Do not pick it up. Do not take anything from a stranger. Do not do this. Don't talk to people who you don't know. Never know if they'll kidnap you or take you away or so that is, it's, it's hard to really um, make them adjust to a new life. I think they are still um, thinking about their past and they still feel unstable. Everywhere I take them, they still feel unstable. And especially in New York City, it was not easy to stay there for the last four years. And Berlin is better? I think it is. It, it is still uh, much better than being in Baghdad, and especially being away from them, not knowing. I mean, the first two years after I left, I had no way of even speaking with them on the phone. The people who they stayed with were kind of angry at me for leaving, and so I was prevented from talking to them for for two years. Right. Now it is better. I try to make them feel safe and protected, uh, but they still feel unstable. Since they left Iraq, they still feel unstable. And they still miss their friends. 
the marbles they left, the toys they left behind, the you know schools and how good it was and how laid back it was. Yet they talk also about the the dangerous situation they have been through. What do they wish they could have taken with them when they left Iraq? Your children. They always talk about books. Uh, marbles, toys, and not saying goodbye to everybody they know. Mm. Who's responsible for this, for these experiences of exile, people who had to leave, this sense of instability? Is it, is it the U.S.? Is it Saddam Hussein? Is it 9-11? Is it uh, the decisions that you and your family have made on your own? Who's responsible for all this 10 years after the U.S. invasion? I would say it's a mixture of many uh, people's efforts. The U.S. won, of course, because they are the smartest, we think, or we hope. And then Iraqis who put their hands in the hands of the U.S. government to do this to Iraq. And, of course, Saddam Hussein, who was insane at the time and did not want to compromise. I cannot really predict what he should have done better but I would definitely blame the U.S. government and also the Iraqis um, who put their hands in the hands of the U.S. government. Well, Allah, it's been great talking to you and the best of luck to you and your children. Thank you so very much and thank you for having me. Allah Majid, interpreter with the Iraqi Refugee Assistance Project, a refugee herself and former journalist. Her forthcoming book, Iraq, Death of a Nation, will be published in May. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.